This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host read ads, just like this one, as well as interview segments and topical discussions. Podcorn is great because it allows you to connect with brand sponsors directly with no middleman and negotiate rates for yourself. Podcorn gives podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control over how and when we monetize, while maintaining all of your intellectual property rights. If you're a podcaster yourself or plan on starting one in the future, you can find a link to Podcorn in the show notes to sign up now. And the best part is, the website is free, so there's no real reason to at least not give them a try. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we saw everything go wrong for the Oxumites. Both of the Oxumite kingdoms, in Africa and Arabia, were devastated by plague, famine, and economic collapse. Oxumite Arabia, however got the brunt of it. With this kingdom in shambles, King Mashruq of Aksumite Arabia was forced to submit to Negus al-Amidas, reuniting Aksum into one empire after decades of division. However, trouble is still lurking in the north. Their disgruntled Aksumite prince, an Arab rebel pretender, and the emperor of the Persian Empire are plotting to wage a war against the kingdom of Aksum. Now that we're caught up, let's begin. Episode 23, The Aksumite-Persian War. The year was 570 AD. A Persian army set sail from the port of Basra, ready to make war against the empire of Aksum. After centuries of quiet rivalry and diplomatic tension, the two greatest powers of the West Indian Ocean were finally at war. Leading this invasion was an unusual trio of powerful men. Each of them came from a different background, practiced a different religion, and sought different outcomes from this expedition. The first of these men was Mahdi Karib. Karib, who some sources call Yaksum, was the rebellious half-brother of the Aksumite governor, Mashruk. Karib's father, Abraha, was the Aksumite general who had seized power in Arabia by rebelling against King Caleb and established his own independent kingdom of Aksumite Arabia. As a young prince, Karib had grown up hearing stories of his father's cunning conquest, how hard he had to fight to maintain that kingdom, and how, one day, he or his brother would inherit this kingdom that he had fought so hard for. However, as we know, that isn't exactly how things worked out. When Abraha died, his two most important sons did not cooperate to rule the kingdom together, but instead immediately began feuding over power. Each brother had their fair share of allies among the Aksumite elite of Yemen, but ultimately, Mashruq won out. Seeing that Aksumite Arabia was on the brink of collapse anyways, and in desperate need of allies in case his brother continued to be a trouble for him in the future, Mashruq submitted to Aksumite Africa, promising to continue his rule over Yemen not as a king, but as a humble governor. With his brother now secure as the Aksumite governor, Karib was forced into exile and his supporters went into hiding. Rather than living the rest of his life in peaceful seclusion, Karib dedicated his exile to plotting a way to take back the throne. This, of course, eventually led him to the palace of the Persian Shah, Khosro, who decided to lend him support in his effort to retake the throne by mounting this very invasion force. Karib's goals of what he wanted to do after he ousted Mashruq were clear. He would re-establish an independent Christian kingdom of Aksumite Arabia, with himself on the throne. The second man to lead this expedition was Saif ibn Di Yasan, a powerful Himyarite noble. Historically, Yasan is an enigmatic figure. Most of what we know about him comes from his popular biography. But given that this biography was written about 1,000 years after his death, and also describes his adventures battling wizards and jinn, well... Let's just say it's not super reliable. 
In fact, Yazan might not even have been his real name. All we can really say for certain is that there was some Himyarite noble or tribal leader of importance on this voyage. Whoever he was, his religion was likely that of Judaism. Remember, prior to the Aksumite conquest in 525, most of Himyarite's Arab elites had converted to Judaism, and remained committed to the Jewish faith, despite aggressive conversion campaigns after the Aksumite conquest. Despite his obscurity in the reliable historical record, we can assume certain things about Yazan's goals based on the context of the time. Yazan likely didn't care much about which Aksumite dynasty was ruling his country. He wanted them gone. Period and likely sought to place himself on the throne of the restored Jewish kingdom of Himyar, once the Aksumites have been driven back across the Red Sea. And, as you can see, we've already run into a problem. These goals are obviously contradictory. I mean, one of these guys is an Aksumite who wants to re-establish a Christian kingdom, while the other guy is a Himyarite Arab who wants to re-establish a Jewish kingdom. What's to stop these guys from turning on each other the moment that this voyage lands in Arabia? This is where our third character, a man named Boe enters the picture. Boe was a general in the Persian army, but not exactly of his own choice. He and the soldiers he commanded came from an ethnic group in northern Persia called the Dalamites. Now, the story of the Dalamites more generally is a really interesting one that, unfortunately, falls outside of the purview of this show. So, to make a long story short, the Dalamites had developed a, let's say, complicated relationship with the current Sassanid Shah of Persia, Khosrow II. Early in Khosrow's reign, the leaders of the Dalamites, including Boe himself, had supported a rival claimant to the Persian throne. However, given that I keep referring to Khosrow as the current Shah, we can guess who won out in this rivalry. Typically, this support for his enemy would have convinced Khosrow to just, you know, execute them. However, rather than execute all of these Dalamites, Khosrow decided that maybe he could get some use out of them. He promised 1,000 Dalamite prisoners led by Boe that he would pardon them from their execution on the condition that they ship off to Yemen to support Karib and Yazan in toppling Mashruk. One of these prisoners was Boe's eldest son, Nauzad. Nauzad, purely because of his association with his father, was forced to accompany the dangerous expedition as a field captain. This decision to use death row prisoners instead of a normal, full-time army in this invasion is kind of telling about how the Persians viewed the prospects here. From Khosrow's perspective, this was basically a suicide mission. If the invasion failed and all these prisoners died, oh well, it's like having them executed anyways. While Khosrow viewed this expedition as basically a suicide mission, for Boe it was anything but. Rather, it was a desperate battle for him and his men's survival. So, by any means necessary, Boe would make sure that this invasion was a success, regardless of who came out on top in the end. Now, I know that this invasion already sounds like the setup to a bad joke. You know, a disgraced Oxmite prince, an Arab Jewish noble, and a Persian death row inmate walk into a bar. However, given the state of Oxmite Arabia at the time, Mashruk would have to make plans of his own if he was going to fight off this invasion. He had caught wind of this impending attack, and was scrambling to cobble together an army to face his enemies in battle. However, building an army was no easy task. Remember, the reason Mashruk had felt forced to submit to the capital was that Aksumite Arabia was in complete shambles. One of the last things his father had ever done on the throne was mount an expensive, failed attack on Mecca, an incursion which had gained nothing and cost a lot turning the once grand army of Aksumite Arabia into a shell of its former self. To make matters worse, a significant portion of the population was absolutely unwilling to help him. Most of the Arabs were unhappy living under the fist of a foreign Christian ruler. The Aksumite elite of Arabia, mostly made up of the descendants of his father's officers, largely supported Karib's rebellion, so he couldn't find much help there either. 
The only place in which he found any significant support was, of course, in Najran, the city that always seems to be the last holdout of Aksumite support in any era. So, with only one city of his satrapy willing to provide manpower, Mashruk wrote for help. Mashruk sent a message to El Amidas, the emperor of Aksum, requesting that he send an army to help him defend southern Arabia from the incoming invaders. Amidas accepted, ferrying an army to Yemen with orders to aid Mashruk. Between the newly arrived army and those he recruited from Najran, Mashruk found himself in command of a 10,000-man army. Nothing compared to the hundreds of thousands commanded by Aksumite kings at the empire's height, but a respectable force nonetheless. To make matters even better for Mashruk, the Persian voyage was not going well at all. Two of the ships that carried this army had incurred serious damage during the storm, and were, depending on who you believed, either shipwrecked in India or sank to the bottom of the ocean. So, just like that, almost a fifth of his Persian adversaries were no longer an issue. Additionally, the Arab noble Yazan had grown sick during this journey and had to return to Persia. Now that Yazan wasn't physically on the expedition, Maybe these invaders would have a harder time finding support among the Arab communities. However, the good news for Mashruk ended there. The Persians landed in the easternmost region of the Aksumite holdings in Arabia, known as Hadramat. There, it became clear that Yazan and Karib, who had promised that an army of supporters was waiting to help overthrow Mashruk, were not liars. Between the Arab tribes and the rural villages, to the personal guards of the pro-Karib Aksumite elites who dominated the cities, volunteers quickly flocked to the Persian army growing their force from just around 800 to 12,000 men. When Mashruk arrived in Hadramat to confront the Persians, he was shocked to see that the small brigade of a few hundred Persians he was expecting now outnumbered him. When the two sides first met in battle, however, things initially went in Mashruk's favor. Despite his numerical disadvantage, he commanded an army of professional Aksumite soldiers alongside Najrani conscripts. This army was far more disciplined and precise in their fighting than the motley mixture of criminals, tribal warriors, and personal bodyguards on the other side. The smaller Oxmite force seemed to be winning the day, forcing their enemy to fall further and further back. Boe, from the top of the hill, was surveying the battle, trying to look for a weakness in the Oxmite lines that he could exploit, but he hadn't found anything yet. However, at one point during the battle, he did spot something that made his blood run cold. At one part of the line, Mashruk's army clashed victoriously with one of his wings, stepping over the corpses of the men who'd fallen during the clash. Among these corpses, he spotted one that looked familiar. It was the body of his son. Deeply saddened by the loss of his son, Boe must have briefly considered giving up the battle right there. However, this sorrow quickly faded, and in its place rose the undying need for revenge. This battle was no longer about creating a puppet for the Shah, or protecting his men from execution, but about killing the man responsible for his son's slaughter. The Persian general spotted Mashruk, riding his horse back and forth across the line, giving orders to his soldiers. The horse was moving too quickly for any of the Oxmite archers to hit their mark, but after riding back and forth across the line, Mashruk's mount had grown tired. In its place, Mashruk was forced to switch to the back of a slower-moving mount, a donkey. Spotting an opportunity, Boe pulled out a bow, drew back an arrow, and fired. The arrow hit its mark perfectly. With nobody to give orders, Mashruk's army deteriorated from a disciplined army into a frightened mob. While they continued to hold their position, their Persian enemies began to make use of a truly frightening weapon. Known as the Panjagan, meaning fivefold, this unique type of Persian bow was capable of shooting five arrows at once. While its exact design has been lost to time, there are several interesting YouTube videos you can find that attempt to replicate the ancient weapon. 
they're definitely worth your time to watch, and I'll be linking some of them on the podcast's blog. Neither the Oxumites nor any of the Arabs on both sides of the battlefield had ever encountered such a weapon before. They must have been confused and terrified at why they were now being peppered with such an unimaginable volume of arrows. And to make matters worse, they were no longer receiving any orders from Mashruk, who appeared to be slumped over on his donkey. Receiving no orders from their dying general and losing their composure under a hail of arrows, Mashruk's army began a panicked retreat back to Sana'a, being harassed by their enemies the whole way. By the time they reached the city, the remains of Mashruk's army decided that they had no way of coming back from this defeat, and surrendered. Now, this story involving Boe personally shooting Mashruk in revenge for his dead son is, in my opinion, probably at least a little bit exaggerated. But regardless of how exaggerated the details of the Battle of Hadramat are, the result is the same. Mashruk was dead, and Oxumite Arabia had followed with him. 570 had to be the best year of Mahdi Karib's life. Not only had he acquired Persian assistance for his rebellion and witnessed his rebellion's success, he had also witnessed the death of his treacherous half-brother Mashruk. And things only seemed to be getting better. After Yazan had returned to Persia, he had succumbed to illness, meaning that there was now no question that Karib would be the one to sit on the throne of Aksumite Arabia. He gleefully accepted to become a Persian vassal, and finally had recovered the crown that he had so strongly desired for his whole life. Sensing that their job was done, Bowe and his men packed up their things and returned to Persia, ready to enjoy the rest of their lives as free men. After the Persians had left, Karib had figured that the war with Aksum was over, and that he could resume peaceful rule. He dismissed his Arab allies, telling them that it was now okay to return to their villages. Karib's position among the Arab population, though, was not exactly stable at this point. I mean, their leader, Yazan, was dead, and they had fought a bloody conflict to replace one Aksumite Christian ruler with another one. So the proposition that the Arab Jewish forces that made up the bulk of his army would turn on him was frighteningly realistic. So, in an attempt to get on their good side, Karib thought he'd do his army a favor by granting them leave, a mistake which turned out to be fatal. Once the bulk of Karib's army had returned to their homes, things didn't immediately improve for the new king of Yemen. His kingdom had already been in bad shape before the war, and was even worse off now that it had suffered through yet another brutal conflict. So, southern Arabia slumped into yet another economic recession. Meanwhile, in Aksum, Allah Amidus was not just going to take this defeat lying down. While Mashruk's defeat had been expensive in both manpower and resources, the Aksumite military still had a little bit of fuel in the tank. Over the next five years, Amidas desperately scraped together the money and manpower needed, and, in 575, he had an army ready to fight. He placed the army under the command of a general named Abraha II. And yes, based on that name, this general is now supposedly the third of Abraha's sons to be involved in this war, though he was probably just some random guy whose connection to Abraha was fabricated anyways. Heck, I saw one source even claim that he was actually the son of Ariat, you know, Abraha's old rival during Caleb's invasion of Himyar, and that this was his way of getting back at the family of the man who'd killed his father. But like, come on. Regardless, this is some serious family drama either way. Anyways, when Abraha II's new army arrived on the shores of Yemen, Karib went into a panic. He had no army ready to defend his kingdom. I mean, who in their right mind is going to answer the call to arms of an unpopular king when they were just allowed to return home? So, instead of trying to mount a defense, 
Karib fled away from his capital in Sana'a, but was quickly apprehended by an Aksumite spy and executed. Now, with no king, no army, and no official heir to the throne, the independent kingdom of Aksumite Arabia was finished, for good. In its place, Yemen was once more under the direct rule of the Aksumite king. When word reached Tesaphon, the Persian capital, that Ella Amidas had retaken Arabia, Shah Khosro was furious. He had entrusted that Ethiopian prince Karib to rule Yemen as a vassal, and yet he had not even tried to mount a defense against Abidas's forces. He summoned Boe to the palace, and instructed him to set sail for Yemen as soon as possible. This time, the Shah would not provide him a meager force of 800 convicts, but a true army of 4,000 trained soldiers. The battle they fought against the Aksumite army in Yemen was swift and decisive. This ragtag Aksumite force, while they had proven capable in defeating Karib's non-existent military, was composed of a few thousand hastily conscripted farmers, hardly an elite military force. After crushing this sad army in a pitched battle, Bowie began besieging the capital of Sana'a. In the year 578, after three years of resistance, the capital fell and the last Oxmite forces in Arabia were hastily ferried back to the African port of Adulis. The Persian Shah, no longer interested in ruling through local intermediaries, annexed southern Arabia directly into the Sassanid Persian Empire as a new province, and appointed Boe as its new governor. Since the invasion of Gadarat almost four centuries prior, this was now Oxum's sixth war in southern Arabia, and would prove to be the last. Aksum was still around after the war, of course, but it would never again be the global power it once was. The military was decimated by its multiple defeats, the government had bankrupted itself in its desperate attempts to raise new armies, and the economy, already weak, was now in turmoil. While Ala Amidas had been focused on his wars with the Persians, his eyes had been taken off a series of domestic problems which were just now beginning to bear rotten fruit that would haunt the Aksumites for centuries. And then he died in 580, and left these problems to the new emperor, his younger brother, Wazeb. Remember how in the last episode I said that the incense orchards of the Ethiopian highlands had been replaced with teff fields as an emergency response to the plague outbreak? Well, the damage to the soil from that intensive teff farming was just starting to pay dividends. The fields surrounding Oxum, once the region's most fruitful, were now among its most barren. To make matters worse, after years of exploitation for ivory and use as battle mounts, the elephant population of the Ethiopian highlands was in a freefall. In a desperate attempt to prevent their extinction, Wazeb created a series of laws meant to limit the hunting of elephants, but it was too little, too late. Over the next few decades, the bush elephant would go extinct in East Africa. This extinction, in addition to being sad from a conservationist perspective, was also devastating to Oxum's economy. After incense, ivory was the kingdom's next most valuable export. With no more elephants, there was no more ivory to sell. The incense trade wasn't doing much better. Persia's conquest of southern Arabia meant that the Oxmite monopoly on incense was once again broken, and incense prices crashed along with it. While Oxum also once enjoyed unquestioned dominance of the Red Sea trade, the Persian presence in Yemen was further harming its ability to export what resources it had left. So, with one of its main exports crashing in value, and the other main export being, well, extinct, the Oxumite economy went into an utter tailspin. The bustling, cosmopolitan markets of Adolis and Oxum grew emptier by the day, and the royal treasury began to run dry. For Oxum, the world was certainly changing fast, and not for the better. However, in the 7th century, Oxum wouldn't be the only part of the world undergoing immense change. 
A spiritual movement from the city of Mecca would soon begin to grow rapidly, spreading over the entirety of Arabia and toppling two of the world's largest empires. And none of it would have been possible if not for the actions of one specific king of Aksum. Join us next episode to learn about Al-Najashi, or as he was known in Aksum, Arma, as we get to witness the rise of Islam from the Aksumite perspective. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested. The History of Africa podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, like Aaron Lynch, Sandro, and Kevin Johnson. The show's editor and I put in about 20 hours or more of work into each episode, so your support is crucial in helping us keep the lights on. Thank you so much for helping us make the show happen.